The views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times at this time. Rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the beast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with New Abolitionist and Actionist Johanan Elia and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is April 6, 2016, National Poetry Month. Exactly 45 years and two days to the day after MLK was shot and killed by James Earl Ray, or so they say. King said that in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends, that thing on which our continued oppression depends. So let's start from the top. What's a good cop? The NYPD 12 must be among the best, and today we'll share their story from News 4i team titled More NYPD Officers Say There's Proof of Quota-Driven Arrest. At one point, you can hear them clearly say, we are the predators and you are the prey. When Commissioner Bill Bratton was asked his opinion of these explosive facts, he was quoted as saying, bullshit is my response to that. Our next story sounds like it may be about communist China, but it's actually about South Carolina, where the Sixth Amendment is a non-existent right. Legal director of the CR crew, S-C-A-C-L-U, Susan Dunn, was about done when she said this one about the SC citizens' plight. When you go to a summary court in South Carolina, you find yourself in a judicial netherworld where the police officer who made the arrest acts as the prosecutor. The judge may not have a law degree, and there are no lawyers in sight. Next on our list of reports for tonight is courtesy of Truth Dig, and this one is big. On our abolitionist wish list, this is major, and we salute your resolution and bravery. Starting September 9th, prisoners nationwide will begin a coordinated work strike to protest prison slave labor and modern-day slavery. That should be enough, but there's still more to tell, like how Walter Scott's family will be receiving 6.5 mil, and how a Maryland judge who is white has been banned from the bench for life over the violence of ordering a bailiff to stun a black man for speaking was specifically told to be silent. And the story of another black body on the Aiken SC streets told by overseer creeps to get against the car and spread his cheeks while they violated his rights in the ultimate disrespect to him. Let me state it. As racist hate manifests, 
as state-sanctioned rape when you're performing a roadside search of a black man's rectum. We don't write them. We just select them. There is always more than enough insanity handy, like a New Orleans man who is facing life in prison right now for stealing $31 worth of candy. Speaking of insane, it's a national shame, and that much is clear when you award the most proxy racist, self-hating black cop in America, Law Enforcement Leader of the Year. Then, just like Christmas Addicts, who was the first casualty effectively during the Boston Massacre on March 5th, 1770, at the start of the Civil War, so was a homeless schizophrenic named Lester Wallace, the first to fall only nine hours after the Three Strikes Law was passed on March 8, 1994. The Clintons' first victims as Wackenhut Corrections drones, story courtesy of Matt Tiabi's article in the recent Rolling Stone. In this week's Writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad segment, we salute Brooklyn's Andre Hatchett, who regrets gained his life at 49. He maintained his innocence and would not quit. In March of 2016, he was exonerated after serving 25 torturous years in prison for a murder he did not commit. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is the little-known black abolitionist John S. Jacobs, 1815 to 1875, author of the serial narrative entitled A True Tale of Slavery from the Leisure Hour, a family journal of instruction and recreation, February 7, 14, 21, 28, 1861. We'll honor and remember him by reading a selection of his work. Expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. We invite you to join the conversation by calling us at one six four one seven one five three six six zero extension five four nine zero three two pound. Just press star six and one to queue up on the compass line. Once again, I'm Max Parkes. What's happening, brother Scotty? Um, everything good on this end. How's things with you and the missus? Uh, going good, man. As a matter of fact, we're about to celebrate our 28th anniversary in a couple of days. Wow, that's great. Yeah, indeed, brother, indeed. You know, I had to do something a little special for Poetry Month, so <laughs> I yeah, brought it I a little different that. today. Yeah, I noticed that, man. Nice flow to it and what have you. So, you know, uh, glad to be back on the airways on a Wednesday night. Um, new abolitionist radio. We still waiting on Johan, and I'm sure he'll be joining us shortly. Oh, speak of the abolitionist, there he is, Johan. Peace, peace, to the, peace to the abolitionists. Good Welcome home, brother. Word, man, man. Uh, you know, we was uh, just. So I was telling Scotty earlier, we got this story that we really want to share, but because we're short on time, we're just going to put it up earlier in the program so we can get it out of the way. People can hear this insanity that has recently happened um, out in Maryland by a judge who apparently has a history of being vengeful. And uh, I don't think there's a room in this world for vengeful judges. Qu Do you think so, guys? Qu question. Um... I don't know the details on this story. Well, I know the details on the story, but I haven't confirmed. But I believe this is in Prince County or Prince George's County, uh, Maryland. If that's true, I only seen this guy one time and I haven't had opportunity to talk to my uncle. But I think this is the same judge that begged a jury, a hung jury. They were hung jury at that point. They had come out twice and said they couldn't come to a verdict. Uh, in a trial and them trying to charge uh, my cousin on some weapon possessing charges. He had legally owned 
firearm and he was in the United States. He was a captain in the Air Force and what have you and had and there was an incident of road rage and then they tried to charge him with a gun charge. This judge begged the jury to go back in there and convict him on something. I mean it was several charges and begged them, you know, can't you just give me a, a guilty verdict on something is how my uncle described it. I think it's this guy. It's possible. He's he's also guilty, this judge, of deflating someone's tires, flashing someone's tires to park into his parking spot back in two thousand and nine. Wow. So, so did you want me to roll uh, that let's clip? Just play the clip, man. Yeah, and, and let people hear what we heard. This is just crazy. To move on to a different kind of courtroom scene right now, and this one is shocking. Literally, a judge ordered a deputy to use a taser on a defendant who kept talking after the judge ordered him to stop, and now the judge is being disciplined. ABC's Eva Pilgrim has the story. It's literally a shocking moment in court. <laughs> Maryland Judge Robert Nally caught on camera ordering a deputy to stun a defendant in his courtroom. Mr. Sheriff, do it. That's Delvon King screaming on the ground. He was in court representing himself on a gun charge, but at some point during the hearing, Judge Nally appears to run out of patience. I didn't ask you what your name was. I asked how you wish to be addressed. In this newly released video from July 2014, King tries to make a legal argument, but the judge orders him to zip it up. Stop. Stop. But King keeps talking. That's when Judge Nally takes action. The deputy using a stun cuff on King, the electronic ankle bracelet sending a 50,000 volt shock through his body. It felt like fire went through my back. The judge now taking a permanent break after the incident, Maryland's highest court banning him from the bench for life. I regret that it ended this way. Nally pleading guilty to a misdemeanor civil rights violation. The court sentencing him on Thursday to one year's probation, finding him $5,000 and ordering him to take anger management classes. For Good Morning America, Eva Pilgrim, ABC News, New York. Wow. All the cameras in the court, too. Hard to watch. Man, uh, is that your first time hearing this, Cuddy? Have you, have you heard it already? No, I had heard it and, and watched it. Um, yeah. I mean, Man, should be, that's, that's uh, like, amazing. I mean, it should be charges on the deputy, too. Yeah, you know, when I saw this, it put me in mind of this test that was applied to people. It was like a blind electric shock test where they would see how far people would go when told to electrocute somebody, regardless of how much pain they were in. Uh, it just struck me as that line following of authority that this policeman was doing. The judge says, do it, and he does it right away. Hmm. America, man, this is what we do here. This is, the, you know, this is why we go around the world dropping bombs on people and giving them freedom. Because we want them to follow our model of freedom and justice and all of this other stuff we talk about. This is a... Uh, this is crazy, man. I mean, not only the audio, which everybody heard, but the link is up. So, you know, watch it as well. And you could just see, I mean, it, the man is representing himself, which is his right to do. And as we reported uh, around the country, several places are strapped for cash and the, the uh, public defense system is, is crumbling. Louisiana right now is, is potentially going to have to release people without even giving them a, a truck because they don't have money to afford them a defense. So this man is defending himself. 
And as he's just trying to make his legal argument, the judge asked him some petty question having to do with, he says, uh, uh, what do you want to be called? And, he, and I guess the guy responded his name or said, I didn't ask you your name. I asked you, what do you want to be called? Light him up. Like, it's, I mean, why are you being so aggressive to this person? You already got them where they're going to be in jail. I mean, they're already locked up because of the bail system. He's already in jail. He's just got a chance to, to prove his innocence so he can get out of jail. And, I mean, you just light the man up like that. Just, I don't know. It shows he's completely out of touch. They say in the uh, Baltimore Post-Examiner that he was trying to cite a court case. And they've got the transcript here right before he was shot where he was saying principles of common right, common reason are. And then, you know, that's when the, the judge came in as he was going null and void. So uh, the dude was trying to defend himself. He wasn't uh, convicted of anything. He was still an innocent man in the eyes of the law, so to speak. You know, he was up there to defend himself because of these terrible-ass lawyers that were given these days. If you're given any, as you just said, by Louisiana. Sad state of affairs, man. Sad state of affairs. But, I mean, far for the course, as we talk about on this program every week, we show and prove with the facts and the evidence. And just, I mean, the evidence is so pervasive, state to state all over the country, uh, that this judge is following a template. I mean, if the average American person can can look at these situations like can look at the court system or look at the jail system look at the you know shows like cops or look at you know violence against innocent unarmed people and say well you just shouldn't have did the crime or you shouldn't do it giving cops any reason or you know have all these excuses and just look at the average person as being basically guilty you know before you know any facts about the story if every if people could just do that so casually and write off their fellow man their fellow citizen their co-worker their, their person that goes to their church, their person in their neighborhood, the parents of the kids who are in your children's classes at school. You just blow these people off like, oh, they probably are guilty. I'm trying to figure out when are you going to see the threshold where people can look at these judges, these prosecutors, these cops, court clerks and bailiffs and so forth as being guilty and being criminal and, and breaking these people, you know, breaking uh, uh, laws and, and violating these people's constitutional rights systematically and you should just be matter-of-factly assuming that that's what they're doing because the time and again we're showing that corruption is is just as pervasive on the so-called right side of the law as it ever could be on the on the citizen side we keep showing you you know i know what it feels like to go before a petty racist judge as i've told you before my wife appeared before what who they call hanging harry who loved to make examples of black women and made one of her by putting my wife in jail for a week for uh, failure to pay insurance. It expired that day. That's how petty it was. Now, this judge is the same way. We can see that in 2009, he was slashing people's tires for parking in his parking spot. Now, what would you do with the authority of a judge in a courtroom at least between 2009 and 2016? His whole career should be reexamined right now to see what he's done. There's possibly a lot of innocent people out there that have been affected by him. This is something we get on and say every time. And right now, according to uh, this report, they're saying that there is no investigation plan that they're aware of at all. Right, right. So this, again, it all ties together, and this brings to my mind again. And, you know, I'm sure there's some that, that – will say I'm kind of like a broken record on this thing, but this is happening right now. And I just, I will be hurt if I see us take steps backward that we don't need to take. 
this is the same kind of thing that I'm saying, like, related again to the Ken Thompson situation. I mean, you want to see somebody that actually will investigate further, that will actually try to dig deeper and try to, I mean, you could count them on one hand. The number of political officials, anyway, the number of people that are in positions that have legislative or, or administrative authoritative power, it's, it's, a, it's a minimal number of folks across the country that are willing to put their career on the line, that are willing to put their name out there, that are willing to become known in, in their circle, in their professional circles, and in their political circles as somebody that is uh, – not going along with everything that you know, not going along with the system and its and its impunity and its way of creating and uh, perpetuating slavery. Now, yes, on the private side, of course, you got Innocence Project. Of course, you got advocates. Of course, you got ACLU, SPLC. You've got these different groups and these different advocacy uh, efforts. But on the on the other side of it, these people are few and far between. So we need people that will investigate this judge more thoroughly, go deep into his records. I I mean, who? Would who would honestly feel afraid of wagering that this guy has many cases that he's straight up screwed people over? I mean, is it hard to imagine? Yeah, we point that out every week, every time we hear about these things. That's part of the process of freedom that we have to gain. You have to free the people who are subject to indicative, racist, uh, petty, uh, just horrible judges and cops and police, uh, like what's going on with Brooklyn with hundreds of cases being investigated or were being investigated. Who knows what the future of that holds? But we've got to do something about this. You just can't smack somebody in the hand for what you just caught them doing. If you're right. in the, hand, the cookie jar, they've probably been getting cookies for the past 20 years, the whole damn career. You know, and in these cases, these cookies are people's lives being destroyed sitting there rotting in prisons when you're innocent for 20, 30 years, all because somebody won't investigate a crooked judge. You ain't got no time to look through the records of the last 20 years. That would take too much work. Hire people. You got enough money to send them to prison? Hire people to do that. Right. Yeah, we, we had a tough crossroads, man. We had a real tough crossroads. People know that this is a... That what's going on is is wrong. They know uh, it, it's just cowardice, ultimately. It is, it is, and you know this kind of leads into the first story. I'm doing a little juggling with the stories and putting something else uh, before the NYPD thing. I want to talk about the South Carolina courts because it kind of goes right along with this. Uh, what's going on right here? Um, there's a story that just came out from Take Part, and uh, where they say few lawyers and little justice in South Carolina's lower courts study fines. Now, mind you, over uh, years, we've been telling you here uh, on New Abolitionist Radio about how some of these courts are set up where the judges, the magistrates, don't even know a thing about law. you got former rat catchers acting as judges in their garages in some places. And I'm not exaggerating because I live in a city where the courthouse looks like a fish shack. Right here in this city I'm in right now. You wouldn't even know it was a courthouse. You think you'd be going in there to get a fish sandwich. That's what it looks like. So I guess you get what you pay for. In any case, the story goes, you heard your favorite TV crime stopper say a thousand times. You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. If you can't afford an attorney, one will be provided for you at no cost to you. It's a familiar refrain that carries with it what seems like a simple guarantee, but in the real world, accessing a public defender isn't always easy, and in some places, it doesn't happen at all. In South Carolina's lower courts, called magistrate, 
municipal or summary courts, low-income defenders are routinely denied access to attorneys or not informed of their Sixth Amendment rights, according to a new report published Monday by the American Civil Liberties Union and the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. When you go to a summary court in South Carolina, you find yourself in a judicial netherworld where the police officer who made the arrest acts as a, as a prosecutor, the judge may not have a law degree, and there are no lawyers in sight, said Susan Dunn, legal director of the ACLU in South Carolina, in a statement. As Take Part reported last August, operations in these local municipal courts, which handle low-level offenses ranging from traffic, traffic violations to criminal misdemeanor charges, such as theft and minor assault, vary widely from county to county. Some are staffed with public defenders, but many are not, and that's where the problem lies. Take part observe numerous defendants waiving their rights to an attorney without fully understanding the consequences, and in other instances, being denied counsel by operating as if the Sixth Amendment doesn't exist. These courts weigh the scales of justice so heavily against defendants that they often receive fines and jail time they don't deserve, said Dunn. The report's author watched court proceedings in counties throughout South Carolina from late 2014 to July 2015. In that time, they observed judges without law degrees sending people who couldn't pay fines to jail. In one instance, the author observed an elderly black woman in North Charleston being charged with shoplifting meat and cake from her local Walmart. She requested a public defender, but the judge wouldn't assign her one. She was handcuffed and sent to jail in tears. Those who are able to access a public defender find that it isn't, in fact, free. A $40 application fee must be paid to the state in order to be screened and receive a lawyer, a prohibitive cost for some defendants. Another judge who was observed informing defendants that requesting a public defender was a waste of this application fee as they must be dirt poor to qualify. I recall, though I knew, uh, I, I, rec I really thought I knew public defense. And then I got to this, COVID, uh, to vet of the NACDL told Take Part last year, the underbelly of what's happening in the United States is very different. This is a crisis of indigent defense. Here's the story. Oh, I, I just had to read that in entirety. I'm sorry. No, no, no. You're fine. Uh, I mean, it's good for people to hear and, and understand. And, and this is the thing. This is something that is uh, going on throughout the country, and I don't really think people know or appreciate uh, how widespread you know this issue really is, man. It is not required for you to have a law degree to be a judge in nearly half the states in the country. It's just the way it is. Twenty. Okay, here's here's a here's you don't a, even need a high school diploma to be a magistrate. Right, right. This is crazy. American Bar Association Journal. This is from July 2011. Legislative efforts requiring judges to hold a JD meet with mixed results. In 24 states across the country, judges don't need a law degree to serve on certain courts. And despite the questionable appearance of having non-lawyer judges oversee certain cases, recent legislative efforts to require judges to hold a JD have produced mixed results. They said in Indiana, more than 50 of 75 municipal courts do not require judges to be lawyers. And uh, there's another one I was reading about in uh, Philadelphia. 
where they were talking about how there's like 500 judicial offices throughout Pennsylvania that none of the magistrates, none of the judges sitting on the benches have any kind of law experience, a law degree. Now, one of the things that's problematic about that, again, in Pennsylvania, where this is so pervasive, um, they actually indicted several judges there in the Philadelphia traffic court. They had to shut the traffic court down because it was that corrupt. The feds indicted nine current and former judges of the Philadelphia traffic court on various corruption charges related to ticket fixing. So, I mean, we're talking about a criminal justice system that is so draconian, that is so medieval, that is that is so strict and so determined to make a to make a, a statement with these sentences of these like one of the stories we're gonna talk about later. Uh two of the stories we're gonna talk about later. The brother with the candy, the stolen candy, three strikes, and the first brother to go down who was a mentally ill man on the three strikes law signed in the, into uh, law by uh, Hillary Clinton's husband, the first black president, as they love to call it, Bill Clinton. So they're so petty and so punitive against you and against me. But when it's them behind the, behind the, the bench, they fixing tickets to the point where they got nine judges indicted. They finally called them. How many millions of dollars did they cost the city by not enforcing the law against their friends and family, like we saw in Ferguson? Enforcing the law, just ultra going above and beyond to wring the money out of 27,000 residents of Ferguson from $1 million to $3.2 million in just two years when Michael Brown was killed. All around the country we're seeing this. So, you know, this is kind of a joke, man. I mean, it's really kind of sad. It's very sad, brother. And you got to wonder, how do the people get before these judges? What's happening? to get all these people before these judges, particularly as we've been seeing in the southern states, small counties that are driving this mass incarceration trend forward. Well, that's where our other story comes into play. We've got admissions from at least what's being called as the NYPD 12, where they're telling people outright that they're being given quotas they have to fill or else they, get, they lose their jobs or lose their benefits. And for those that are speaking out, their jobs and livelihoods are being threatened. They're whistleblowers of the highest order. And if what they're saying is true, as we know it is, then this is uh, criminal violations of our constitutional rights on a scale that, uh, frankly, is up in the millions with the stop and frisk. So I read, uh, there is a post that I just put on New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, can you hear me, Scotty? Yeah, Max, I can hear you. You want me to play yeah, the clip? There's a post I put on New Abolitionist Radio, which has a video in it. The video itself is five minutes. It may have a uh, commercial at the very beginning, so uh, beware. But maybe we could play that and then go to our break and talk about the story after we come from break. So are we talking about the South Carolina Summary Justice? Article yeah, the, uh, no, the NYPD one is it's at the New Abolitionist Radio page right now. I just posted it up there okay, for you. I'm just refreshing. I don't see the story, Max. Give me a second. Let me refresh it again. All right, now I have it. There you go. Yeah, if you could pull that one up and, and load up the video. There may be a commercial, as I said in the beginning. It was one for me. I hate when these commercials are up with life or death circumstances, but I guess you got to sell everything these days. Nonetheless, it's the I-team did this intense report uh, where 12 officers, as I said, have come out and told everybody what they're doing. They've 
said things to the point where you have to understand we are the predators and you are the prey. They're telling you in no uncertain terms that they're acting as slave catchers now with no other purpose than mainly to fill city coffers with continual income. They have these quotas to fill. And for those that can't pay, as we know, 95% of them that are in jails or in prisons right now have never seen a trial. So it's very unlikely they'll even get a trial. They'll end up in one of these little courts sentenced by a little petty judge to five and ten years in prison for owing a hundred dollar fine. Okay, man, I'll just go uh, to break and then go into that clip uh, right after the break. Okay, sounds good. Make Black Talk Radio your choice for digital black radio. New black media for the new millennium. Tonight, truly explosive allegations in an I-Team exclusive interview. They're coming from police officers who are part of what's being called the NYPD 12. 12 cops who filed a class action lawsuit in federal court. They claim the NYPD is breaking the law by pressuring officers to meet quotas for arrests and summonses and punishing those who don't do it. Several of those officers sat down in our WNBC studios to talk with investigative reporter Sarah Wallace, and she joins us now. Sarah? Well, Chuck and Sabila, the police commissioner declined to be interviewed for this story, citing the officer's lawsuit. But he has repeatedly maintained that numerical quotas do not exist. The department spokesman said members are expected to do their jobs and that just like any other organization, there are performance standards through which employees are evaluated. On the streets in certain New York City neighborhoods, ask about police quotas for arrests and summonses, and this is what you often hear. There's a quota system. There always has been, and there always will be until someone changes. Y'all see that? That's what they target targeting. Yeah, take a seat right here, guys. The front row is set. These NYPD officers, all currently on the job, say it's true. They've all worked the streets, the subways, and patrolled housing developments. The department says there are no quotas. Well, I can tell you, I'm a police officer, there are quotas in the NYPD. Are they lying? Absolutely. It's illegal for them to admit it. They come from different precincts, largely minority neighborhoods in Brooklyn or the Bronx, but their stories are remarkably similar. They tell you this to your face. Black Hispanics between 14 to 21. They must get stopped. They're plaintiffs in a federal class action lawsuit that claims the NYPD is violating a 2010 state ban on quotas, speaking out together for the first time. At the end of the month, these officers, whoever don't have that arrest, or those few summonses, they're pressured to find something. You might not see nothing. You're supposed to be visible. You might not see anything, but you go hunting, like bounty hunting for an arrest, locking up some, some old guy, some homeless guy, finding somebody who's riding a bicycle on the sidewalk, who's spinning, and you bring him in. The problem is when you go hunting, when you pull any type of numbers on a police officer to perform, we are going to go to the most vulnerable. The most vulnerable. Of course. We're going to go to LGBT community. We're going to go to the black community. We're going to go to those people that have no vote, that have no power. If we start doing what we're doing in midtown Manhattan, a phone call to the mayor's office is going to be made. That's going to be the end of it. We're the predators, they are the prey. The worst thing you can have is a police officer that needs an arrest for the month. So you're all minorities. How does that make you feel? It's, it's horrible. This is something coming from the top that trickles its way down. And this is why we're all here today. We first interviewed Officer Edwin Raymond last month. He says he's been recording conversations with NYPD officials for the past two years in an effort to prove alleged quotas and retaliation against cops who don't rack up numbers. They're breaking the law. 
Raymond's claims elicited this expletive from the police commissioner. Bullshit is my response to that. The commissioner insists his policies are focused on the quality of arrests and summonses, not the quantity. The officer's attorney. Is the commissioner lying? Yes. Commissioner Bratton is lying. How can you prove it? I can prove it with testimony, with recordings, with documents. All he wants us to do is go out there and lock them up. They told us it's, 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 it's easy to get numbers out here because you... You work in this type of community. Are you arresting for stuff that you shouldn't be arresting for? Well, that's why we're here. We don't do it. We refuse. And because of that, we are retaliated against. Because you're not harassing people, you're being punished. You know? And it, it doesn't make for a great work environment because they want you to harass people. The lawsuit claims minority officers are punished more severely than white cops for failing to meet quotas. The city denies it. And the community are suffering the most. Because? Because the pressure, because the quota, because the police department is like a whore pretending to be a lady. That's what they are. Are you worried? You know, this is a big step to come forward like this. It's not easy. It's not easy. Um, we are the enemies. We are the people that nobody talked to. The culture of the department, we are the rats. That's how they call us. They are, we are the rats that speak out. It takes a lot of guts from a rat to stand where we stand knowing that our career are basically over the second we speak against such a mafia, because the, the police department is a mafia. It's a, it's a big organized mafia. Again, the police commissioner declined to go on camera to address the allegations. The city has asked a judge to dismiss portions of the lawsuit, claiming the officers haven't begun to prove a case either for quotas or racial discrimination. We will have much more on the story at 11, including what the cops say happens when they don't meet the numbers. Wow. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. This is explosive testimony. These are the men who do it. They're telling you, without mincing words, they're hunting people. They tell you who they're hunting, how they're hunting. They tell you they got proof, both in recordings, on audio, on video, in documents, in witnesses, anything you could possibly want. And the commissioner calls bullshit. Now, why is that? He doesn't even give them the opportunity to speak and say, hey, these are 12 of my employees doing what I, I hired them to do, and they have a problem here. I need to investigate it. Right off the bat, he calls it bullshit. And these are the men that live it every day, and we're the ones who suffer behind it. Don't think it's just happening in New York. And we can prove it right here at New Abolitionist Radio, what's happening in New York. With just a, uh, a article that came out, several articles, a few months back when they had the police slow down. Remember the police in New York decided to stop writing these uh, frivolous tickets and fines for arresting people for nonviolent drug-related crimes. And during that period, they were losing $10 million a week in tickets and revenues. And an order was issued out for them right here where we just posted our new abolitionist radio. No excusals, no administration sick days, no vacation days, no chart days, no LT days. Author of the CEO. E days for second platoon have to be approved by XO. E days for first and third platoon have to be approved by CO. And this was all because they slowed down. They said, if you don't start writing these tickets again, you're not getting sick days. You're not getting vacation days, and you're probably going to get fired. Guys, that was explosive, man. Yeah, it's just ridiculous, man. Like you said, $10 million a week.
and uh, that, <clears throat> excuse me, that was, and it, it, this is the thing too that that I want people to think about and you know realize this is not hyperbole or like an attack against the cops just trying to make them look bad or whatever. But the fact of the matter is this, people, throughout the history of this country, yeah, okay, slavery was the norm back in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, like uh, plantation slavery and the obvious segregation. And you know, all, we know that things looked different, you know, hundreds of years ago or what have you. But I want you to understand that never in, what would that be, 400 years from the 1600s until now, Never in 400 years of any type of police activity, because the laws that were on the books then, racist and inhumane and, and whatever, the police, the law enforcement agency that we had in place then, enforced those laws, carried out those those laws, and they and they sentenced people and fined people and, and ruined lives back then. They were doing it then. And my point is that there's never been a time when the police have sided with the people. It has never happened. There's never been a time when the law was so inhumane, when, when the treatment was so ridiculous and out of control, when it was so brutal, when it was so deadly, when it was so terroristic, when it was just so bad that they was like, man, wait a minute, now I can't do this. There's never been a time. But when they did do a work slowdown, it was after those two cops got killed. And if that was a real murder or whatever, it's still something that's somewhat up for debate. These things are so neatly packaged. But at any rate, two cops die. And because a couple of activist groups, I guess, said something they didn't like and somebody tweeted something that made them mad. And, you know, these petty little BS games, these little childish little immature games that they want to play, their feelings were hurt. Did somebody dare to say something and it hurt their feelings? So they went on a work stoppage and they cost the city those millions and millions of dollars within just the first week. And they only Yo, went back to work when this same Commissioner Bratton said, get back to work. And then Pat Lynch, the big bad union president, said, okay, go ahead and go back, but only go back half, 50% of what you used to do. Johanna, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah I hear you, bro. Yeah, um, they did that in response to the mayor de Blasio saying right. uh, that he had to have the talk with his black son. Because, you know, he's white, but he's married to a black right, woman right. and he has a black right. son. So he had to have that talk about these cops will kill you and you got to be codified behind these enemy lines. <laughs> and, mm. and, and the police got wind of that and the union directed a mutiny, basically. That's what happened, yep. Oh, oh, as you said, all over petty things. Yeah, yeah. Petty, man, petty. So they say there's no, no quotas or whatever, but like we know, the stop and frisk, Stop question the frisk program was uh was proven statistically to have been a complete farce and just a revenue generation machine. Uh they got the stats from uh from an article in Huffington Post a couple of years back. Number one fact uh, in Brownsville, Brooklyn in two thousand and nine, ninety three out of every one hundred residents were stopped by the NYPD. You don't think there's a quota? <laughs> you don't you don't think there's a quota system in place? That's crazy. The Akai Gurley got killed uh, with what they call these vertical patrols going in and out of the housing projects. They could just walk into your housing project and go into private buildings and conduct stop and frisk searches in the hallways or shoot you in the hallways. Blacks and Latinos obviously stopped and frisked by police. Uh, blacks, uh, only like the Ferguson is America stories that Max is prepared and we've been talking about for the last couple of years. 
you know, blacks represent 23% of the population, Latinos 29, whites nearly 50%. Blacks stop and frisk 53% of all stop and frisk cases, blacks. 33% of all stop and frisk cases, Latinos, 13% whites. The far vast majority, double the amount of the other two groups, and not even one-third of the time stopped and frisked. You don't think it's a quota? You don't think it's race-based? I mean, it just goes on and on with the facts. So I'll post that link on the New Abolitionist page, too, underneath uh, underneath this story. And people can get the full picture of what we're talking about here. All the, the All the dots can be connected, and you can see the same picture every single time. Right now in New York State, whites make up a uh, majority of 70.4%. Uh, blacks make up only 17.6%, and yet their arrest rates per 100,000 is whites 174 and blacks 1,627. Quotas, slave catchers, revenue generators. That's what we have become to them, and our lives mean so damn little that they'd be willing to expend our lives for the next 10 or $20. We've seen that already and reported on such incidents like the uh, cases with the lab technicians doing what they were doing for a few freaking dollars, throwing away people's lives for a $100 ticket, a $500 ticket. Like, they don't care, nor do they understand that $500 can mean the difference of whether or not you have a home. So once again, the evidence is is clear. You know, the the program will continue to stand for truth, uh, honesty, fact finding, research, bearing out the facts, and just letting it fall the way it is. You know, this subject is very obvious. This subject is very very easy to prove because the problem is so pervasive. So once again, we'll just keep posting these facts and supporting our arguments. Uh, as I try to remember to ask on the program all the time, and we try to invite people to call into the program and, and comments or questions or whatever, but if you straight up don't believe and just want to debate it and don't think it's the facts, bring your evidence because I don't want it to be this kind of world. I don't want to be right about all of this evidence that we always, I don't want it to be right. I want to see the other side. So help me see what I'm missing. Yeah, imagine that. Well, I don't expect a lot out of the feds. We've been keeping track of what the feds are doing, and as we speak right now, at least half a dozen or more different states are being investigated for the same reasons. We've already found out, without a shadow of doubt, based on the uh, Department of Justice Ferguson, that they're using these fees and schemes to create revenue in countries all across America. This is slavery and human trafficking is freaking confusing. I mean, it's, they're admitting to it on every level, but the feds are really just looking and not doing anything. What there's actually the most recent we heard is they're bringing the, them to take your money from you at a stop where asset seizure laws have now returned after canceling them in December or stopping them, they brought them back now so they can continue to seize your property. Man, we starting to sound like the, the right wing conspiracy groups up in here that think it's so bad. <laughs> hey man, it is what it is. It is a conspiracy. You know, it's a group of people that come together and make plans to benefit one another at the cost of, of those who are who are not in the know of the plan against them. You know, and, and, and to remind people, and I know we got to move forward, but just to remind people, these are not individual pieces to separate puzzles. 
everything we tell you on this program is a, is a interlocking pieces to to a giant jigsaw puzzle that paints a picture of America, and it's a jail bars on it, and it's lynching ropes hanging, and it's you know it, it's it's killing and enslaving people, kidnapping people, terrorizing people to generate revenue and maintain control. I mean, you can't really spin it any other way. It is what it is. These people are conspiring with one another to continue to generate revenue. Like Max just said, they stopped doing it because they got caught. They got called out, so they stopped for a while with the asset uh, forfeiture. But somebody was missing that money. I don't give a damn. <laughs> Until they stop us, uh, get back to getting that money because you cutting into my – I need my vote. I need my condo. Uh, so let's get back to getting that money out there. And they went right back to doing it. It's the same thing with all of these schemes, man. Damn shame, man. Well, there was some good news on the horizon. You know, we were winning some victories along the way. Uh, just because of the fact that these policemen have stood up and told you the truth is a victory as far as we're concerned. We've been asking for them to do that, and they're doing it now. And I pray that their lives and their families' lives remain safe. Uh, for what they're doing here, because this is what we need cops all across the country, prosecutors, district attorneys, all of you, start coming out and telling the truth and stop hiding this. this Everybody already knows about it. You're really wasting your time hiding, just stalling, and eventually we're going to get to a point where all of you are going to be a tribe. Times against humanity. You better come to the right side of history now before it's too late. Well, our next story, as I said, is a victory, man. And prison, uh, prisoners across the country are fighting for their own freedom and rights as well. And there's a national strike that's scheduled. You have, uh, do you want to handle that story right there? That's a good one, man. Hey, we just had guests on last week, as a matter of fact, uh, from the workers' union who uh, was telling us about how they're helping to organize this, including Sam, the Free Alabama movement. Uh, out in Alabama, the prisoners there who are working together, also in Tennessee and Mississippi. Uh, are involved in this, but I believe this one is focused on Texas. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to end up being nationwide because they are communicating with one another through their means. So you know, more power to more power to these brothers and sisters, and that includes the immigrant brothers and sisters that you know, people that are trying to come into this country uh, and are getting caught up in the slave system through that major revenue generating arm as well. So this is all a, a united front. These people are all being forced into labor for slave wages or no wages at all. We've told you this for years. This is no joke. This is what's going on, and this is what's coming of it. The people are having, you're seeing, like plantation slave days, you're seeing uprisings. <laughs> you, you, you know, so it's happening again. This is something that, that's been going on, you know, individual prisons. Uh, I think uh, in Washington, the GO group has, has had it happen several times at their immigrant detention center. Uh, deaths have resulted, many uh, hunger strikes, work stoppages. We know about Wallace County in Texas, um, North Carolina, Georgia, uh, South Carolina, I believe also, Mississippi, obviously, uh, Free Alabama. So these things have been going on individually for a while, but now they are coming together in a coordinated effort. So this is from TruthDig, uh, TruthDig.com. Uh, starting September 9th, prisoners in the United States will begin a coordinated effort to shut down prisons across the country. They plan to stop working in correctional institutions. Without prisoners doing their jobs, these facilities cannot be run. According to support re uh, prisoner resistance, the nationwide prisoner work stoppage will serve as a protest against prison slavery. The school to prison pipeline, police terror, and post-release controls. So these people understand from the inside 
what happened to them to get them in there. So, again, who's going to be one of the best advocates? Who's going to be the best person to tell you what slavery is about? A slave. So listen to what they're telling you. The work, they're being forced into slave labor. They know about the school-to-prison pipeline. Some of them have been in there since they were kids in school and growing up as adults still behind, and they finally putting the pieces together and seeing how they were victimized. Police terrorism, people didn't know. They've been unjustly, like with the Stop, Question, and Frisk program, those major numbers like that. People are hyper-policing and terrorizing neighborhoods unjustly and illegally in a lot of cases and throwing people in prison. So these people are already in there, and they're saying enough is enough. So we got to support them. Prisoners organizing the strike are not making demands or requests in the usual sense. They are calling themselves to action in planned protest and want every prisoner in every state and federal institution across America to, quote, unquote, stop being a slave. People, let it sink in. The cognitive dissonance, if you're struggling with it, just let it go. Just let it go. Just just, just push it away and let this information in. This is, this is the truth. These are the people telling you what they're dealing with. They're being forced into slave labor. It's slavery. So they're telling you it's slavery. Some people may bristle at the notion of prisoners as slaves, but they are forced to work for little or no pay. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which abolished slavery, so it says, also maintains a legal. So see, even within this, they, they're confused. <laughs> How are you going to say the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which abolished slavery, slavery, also maintains a legal exception for continued slavery? It didn't abolish it. It states neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States. Correctional officers watch over every move of prisoners, and if assigned tasks are not performed correctly, prisoners are punished. The goal of the planned September protest is to shed light on injustices within the American justice system. Uh, so, uh, let me see here. It goes on to talk about racial disparity, which is obvious. Uh, the Sentencing Project says the United States is the world leader in incarceration with 2.2 million people currently serving in the nation's prisons or jails, 500% increase over the last 30 years. Uh, so we talk about the overcrowding and talk about, you know, the race, racial disparity and, and all that on the program all the time. So any new listeners, this link will be up on the page. I just want to remind folks also that, um, like, for example, the case of what happened in Wallace County last year, last February, I believe it was, uh, when uh, a privately owned prison owned by Management Training Corporation, um, they did have a prison strike. A prison was built to hold 800 people, and the uh, contracts for the slave labor came through. So they had contracts with companies like McDonald's. We know this to be the case. McDonald's, where they were operating uh, operating uh, to create the uniforms for McDonald's employees. They were working to process the food products, uh, meat products, uh, as well as the plasticware used in the restaurants. These are the jobs that these people had. Now, those should be normal jobs for regular middle-class families to be able to live in safe suburban uh, areas around the country and pay their taxes and send their kids to good schools and by you know pay into the into the uh the revenue stream into the economy and keep everything moving forward, but that's not good enough for Wall Street. They want to strip you of those jobs and send them into the prisons where they can pay uh, detained immigrants pennies, if anything, and deny them medical help, deny them legal counsel, and they built a two thousand man tent city because the prison was built for eight hundred people, but when they rioted, there was twenty eight hundred people being held there. They built 10 tents around the prison, Kevlar tents, 
with air flowing through them, with bugs coming in and, and, and uh, rodents and snakes or whatever, come spiders or whatever, coming into the tents, had the men as close as two feet apart from one, one another, 200 men per tent with 10 tents so they could get an extra 2,000 people and collect all that revenue and put them into slave labor. And when they said enough is enough and quit working, oh, all of a sudden it became a riot. And they brought in every single police agency imaginable, Homeland Security, Sheriff's Department, uh, local police, everything, marshals, everybody showed up on the scene, guns blazing and, and uh, lights and sirens going crazy to stop this riot that's going on. So this is what's really happening in prisons across the country. You know the Free Georgia movement a couple of years ago. Famously, you see the brother's head was busted wide open. Free Alabama's been around for a while when they found out they were communicating with the outside through the leaders of the movement in solitary. I don't know if them brothers have gotten back out since, and their health has been in danger. Their lives have been in danger every day since. So this is pervasive in our country, people. So support these brothers and sisters and these immigrant brothers and sisters because they're just trying to get off the plantation, man. They're trying to get out of slavery. I put up some information on the new abolitionist radio page that shows you what they're dealing with and what the story is. There's several articles that are involved. I would like to give a shout out to uh, Stephanie Megan Brown, who uh, was one of our callers just recently uh, when we spoke about what was happening. She's a member of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, if you guys remember, and they were telling us about the plans to do these things. Uh, more power to them. We need you to fight on the inside just as much as we're fighting on the outside. Together, we can make this happen. Uh, we've shown here on this program and several other organizations have shown you that almost a million people are employed in these prisons across the nation right now for pennies on the dollar, doing everything you could possibly imagine. Reports have come out that say there are as many as 70 factories in California prisons alone, in the prisons. And we know there's call centers and everything you can imagine. This has to end. It just has to end, and these people need to be freed. There's no way in hell you can imagine, as you said, in Wallace County, where you have a prison built for 800 people with nearly 3,000 living in tents outside and expect everything to be okay. It's just, just not. We have to stop this. Well, wow. Scotty, anything on that before the next? No, y'all pretty much covered it, man. Um, but just to show you um, that MTC facility, that was in Texas, right, near the Mexican border. Yep. yep. And But um, during the presidential campaign recently, the tent cities of Joe Arapaio in Maricopa County, Arizona, got highlighted as well, man. So we're talking about human rights violations that are the norm in across, you know, USA Inc. The norm. Well, we got some stories to follow up on that. We just want to pump them out real quick. I suggest that, uh, as we keep saying, you know, try to listen and follow us in uh, simultaneously on the New Abolitionist page on Facebook so you can review the stories and share them as we speak about them. The next one is just shows you how it all goes down is just yesterday was the anniversary of the Walter Scott shooting. And we also just received the information that the family uh, has agreed to a settlement of six and a half million dollars. Now whose money is that? Who's paying that six and a half million here in South Carolina for this policeman who shot a man eight times in the back and then tried to frame him with a cohort policeman for his own death? 
all not because the cops. of child support. Because of child support. And in South Carolina, one in eight men are in jail. Black men are in jail for child support. How the hell putting a man in jail for the lack of being able to support his children is helping the children is far beyond me. But nonetheless, Walter Scott was a man who had decided he would not go to prison again for such a thing. And they shot him in his back in cold-blooded murder and then attempted to free him, frame him. And now the citizens of South Carolina are paying the family six and a half million dollars. Yeah. A lot of those cases uh, with people going, uh, getting locked up behind child support, I just want people to understand it's so easy to stereotype that and just say, oh, well, you should just pay. A lot of those cases are not even based on failure to pay. Like we had uh, Brother Cliff, Cliff Hall on the program a few years ago. This yep. man was paid and up to date. He was double paying. It was the damn judge was friends with the baby mama. I think it was or something. He just had a vendetta. The women there. These cases uh, here in my own state in Kansas and in Missouri, they will violate you to jail over not going to court to, to prove to them that you have a job. You could be paying your child support out of your check, but they will issue a warrant if you don't come to court to stand in front of the, the whoever you call them. I guess it will be a prosecutor or whatever that's standing there in front of the judge and show them proof that you are going to work. Now, mind you, you had to take off work and get a ride up there if you don't have a car and take time away to go to the court and stand in line with a thousand other people to get the same BS warrant to go so you don't go to jail to say, yes, I have a job and I'm going, okay, we just want to keep that on record to make sure because a lot of people will just get a job and then quit and disappear. Well, if I didn't quit and I didn't disappear, why the hell am I in court telling you I got a job, which I just had to take time off? And so the people need to understand and I'm trying to explain it so you understand. It's not just look at Walter Scott and say, oh, he didn't pay his child support. So he, well, I guess he should have. No. No. A lot of people have jobs and are paying it, and it's coming right out their check, and they don't have enough money to even live indoors their own self. Walter Scott was pulled over because the high center-mounted brake light, not the regular tail lights on the bumper, on the trunk, on the back of the car, the, the light in the back window that they used to put in cars in the, in the late 80s and 90s. I don't know if they still do that as much on brand-new cars. But the the little light in the back window, the bulb was out. So when he hit his brakes, the brake lights came on on the trunk, and you can see the video of the stop. The the middle light in the back window glass didn't come on, so that was reason enough to pull him over. Now, if he didn't have enough money to buy a bulb or wasn't even aware it was out, he got pulled over, and that was just probable cause enough, like Sandra Bland, probable cause, tag lights, stickers, brake lights, uh, uh, tread depth. I mean, whatever they can do to stop you, man, and eight bullets later, you know. And mind you, Slager is out on bail thanks to a black judge. And so, yeah. It's terrible. And here in South Carolina, it's getting worse and worse. We've seen the highest number of police killings in the past 15 years happened in 2015. And just recently, we had another report that came in where police in Aiken, South Carolina, stopped a black man and forced him to uh, submit to a cavity search yeah. on the side of the freaking road. They had their hands up this man's ass on the side of the road. I mean, yeah. what part of the Constitution protects you from that? <laughs> and, and why is it why is it we have to be submitted to something so degrading as that? A video 
that we have right now on New Abolitionist Radio, you can take a look at it yourself, and you can see the type of disrespect we have to endure and the type of dehumanization we have to put up with here in South Carolina, Aiken, not too far from where I live. I'm not going to go into too much detail about that story because there is one other one that I did want to get to you. Uh, we all thought it was a very interesting uh, thing to, to know and to point out on a temporal level, and that's uh, the first person to be arrested after the 1994 three strikes law went into play in California. Uh, I believe that was in March of 1994. I'm trying to find the link right now, but Johanna, if you can find it before me, feel free. Start buddy. slave ships. Uh, it's an story. We're going to take a quick break. Give us the new abolitionist radio here on BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. We'll be right back after this. In the face of the violence that we've been uh, experiencing for the past 400 years, is actually doing our people a disservice. In fact, it's a crime. It's a crime. We come to drums. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Um, did you manage to get that link up there, Hunter? The uh, Tiabi, yeah. I believe it's pronounced, Tiabi. I got Indeed. you. So from alternate, um, and again, like I said, this is just, uh, just I guess it's kind of just something to kind of mark a place in time, kind of a bookmark for people to understand. Since this whole thing is coming um, full circle now with uh, Hillary Clinton running for president, and uh, we know and we will continue to beat the drums talking about how her husband, uh, you know, is responsible for the laws that that have put millions i mean he was the literally the most incarcerating president in the history of this country no not even close i think his first 4 years he had more than uh bush and reagan had in all their years combined in his first 4 years see clinton was running trying to say he's a democrat the republicans was in control they were trying to say he's soft on crime he stopped his campaign to go back to his home state to oversee the execution of a mentally ill man to show he was tough on crime. And you heard Hillary Clinton was asked by Ricky Jackson, who did 40 years for a crime he didn't commit and was on death row. You heard him ask her, how do you feel about death penalty? She still couldn't put it down. She still couldn't say no. And Bill Clinton with the crime bill, militarizing the police, throwing all these people in prison. So this is a story that's showing that now it's coming full circle with her wanting to run for president. You know, this is the this is the aftermath, and these are the things we're dealing with still to this day. This is from an alternate. Um, it says California's colossal calamity, known as the three strike sentencing laws, was made less strident by voters last fall. This is from uh, April of 2013. Uh, but an article, uh, but according, I'm sorry, to a profile by Matt Tiabi in Rolling Stone, uh, or Tabibi, I, I don't know. Anyway, the wreckage from sorry, Matt, uh, from Ta-ibi. 16 years. Okay, Tabibi. Uh, 16 years of putting people away for life continues to extract an absurd turn in which thousands of petty criminals and mentally ill people are jailed for no good reason. California passed this law after the brutal kidnapping of 
and murder of a 12-year-old girl in a small northern California town in 93. But as it's chronicled in the story, uh, a parade of Democrats and Republican politicians, law enforcement officials, and get-tough-on-crime activists had created a Pandora's box that's trapped more low-rent offenders than anything else, ruining lives and costing taxpayers millions of dollars. The law imposing life for anyone convicted of a third felony took effect on March, 1990, March 8, 1994. Nine hours later, it found its first victim, a homeless schizophrenic named Lester Wallace. With two nonviolent burglaries on his sheet, he attempted to steal a car radio near the University of Southern California campus. Wallace was such an incompetent thief that he was still sitting in the passenger seat of the car by the time the police arrived. He went to court and got 25 years to life. In prison, Wallace immediately became a target. He was sexually and physically attacked numerous times as an incident involving an incident in his file involving an inmate who told him, Ugh, MFR, I'll kill you and if you don't let me go I'll kill you if you don't let me go up in you. He was switched to protective custody and over the years he has suffered from seizures and developed severe back problems which force him to walk with a cane. He has end stage renal disease which led to dialysis treatments three times a week. Even months after California voters chose to reform the law, the state still won't agree to release him. He's a guy who is literally in there just dying, says Michael Romano, director of Stanford's Three Strikes program and a key figure in the effort to reform the law, and he's still inside. The law was intended to stop the most violent crimes, but it mostly ensnared the low-hanging fruit in the world of crime. People whose stupid decisions and dumb behavior typically fill the day in court logs of local newspapers. As is noted in the story, the California law was promoted or was prompted two dozen states to adopt similar statuses. Statutes, I'm sorry. Was two dozen. That's why I choked up on that word. Two dozen states. That's half the country. And you know why that is? Because it's revenue generation. Once they tasted the sweetness of the honey pot, they found a little honey hole. Hey, y'all need to get on this gravy train too. We could make all kinds of money. So once they, uh, they, it was challenged as unconstitutional, cruel, and unusual punishment, but nobody in the highest echelons of the American justice system wanted to draw a line and be seen as weak on crime. Oh, so, I don't know, do you want me to go through the whole story, or do you think that's enough people get the basic idea? I think people get the basic idea how this all began. It began uh, because a young white girl, Polly Class, was killed by a... Uh, person who had a criminal record. And because of that death, the results have correlated in a position where we're seeing uh, states with incarceration rates of as much as 19 to 1, for instance, in D.C., where black people are paying the cost. And it started from the very beginning. A black homeless schizophrenic man was the first victim of this. Not a murderer who might have done something like kill a polyclass, but a homeless man. Yeah, And here we are in 2016 looking at the full-blown results of this vendetta, of this vengeance, of this petty desire to get revenge on people that you would decimate an entire race of people as a result and, and exploit them on an uh, economic level to the point where you brought that modern-day slavery. So there's a history lesson for you right here 
from New Abolitionist Radio, understanding the roots of things and how they began and why. It's an, it's sometimes it's an amazing uh, moment of clarity. Well, there you have the story from Matt Cavey, uh, and uh, it's from the Rolling Stones originally magazine. Uh, another story that came out, Johan, and just messed up my mind, man. If, uh, maybe you or Scotty, whoever want to pull it up and, and run through this one too, is about the New Orleans man who's facing life in prison right now for $31 worth of candy. And this is the three strike laws. We just talked about the three strike laws coming into the birth. Well, this is 2016. And there's a black man sitting in a prison right now about to spend the rest of his life there because he stole 30, allegedly stole $31 worth of candy. Mm-hmm. That is a, inst- insane and beyond belief. Yeah. We uh, covered this story. Um, well, not this exact story, but I don't know if you remember, uh, we covered a story where a homeless, uh, mentally ill brother was also in the same situation, got life in prison for stealing some something petty. Or no, 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 they caught him with a with a 20 bag of weed. Cool. He had been busted for drug charges like two. No, he had been busted for burglary when he was like 17 or 18. He was homeless his entire life, though. He was homeless when he was 17, when he was 18. And when he got busted for, for you know, uh, thieving or whatever he did back then, mentally ill and homeless. And for the next 25, 30 years of his life, none of the social systems helped him. Nobody reached out. Nobody did anything to get him help or do anything at all for this mentally ill man. And when he was like 40, whatever years old, all these years later, he got caught with with some dope in a in a crappy police sting, if I remember correctly. It was some some setup mess and threw him right on in there for life. So. You know, this is what we're dealing with. I just wanted to point out something that I just realized, too, just by looking at these stories. Uh, in regards to the murder of Polly Class and the results we've seen on the black community, well, Richard Davis, the one that did the killing, was a white man. So it was a white man killing a white girl, but it's right. the black community that paid for it. Right, 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 man. And there's many people who have a knee-jerk reaction uh, to say that that's racist for us to say such a thing. There's people that think that this is all about race, like from our side, because we're reporting the facts and talking about people's lives, talking about communities, talking about entire communities. Is what I don't understand how people don't want to get with the program. We're not talking about individual cases, one here and there. Tyree did this, and Taekwon did that, and Shadequa did. We're talking about systems that are destroying millions of lives. There's entire communities. You talk about Chicago is is a mess? Hell yeah, and it's been a mess. For 25, 30 years it's been a mess because of this type of impunity. And it continues to just... What was the number, Max, where they're saying how many uh, black men are just missing? 1.5 million. Yes! These are audacious numbers. Like, just... I mean, come on, man. Missing. Before the Civil War for about that many people. Uh, I believe it was was, was like almost 3 million people who were enslaved at the time of the Civil War. Yeah, I I think that number is... is, uh, No, no, it was more than that. Seems like I remember, if I'm not mistaken, I think I remember it was something like 5 million, and then there was uh, a big number of folks that was free, too, though, that was running around in the black folks that was the Solomon Northrop crowd. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. 
Well, anyway, to the story though. Sorry, <laughs> we always get sidetracked with this. But at any rate, this is a this is a new story, but the same old same old thing. Um, new Orleans man facing life in prison for stealing thirty one dollars worth of candy. And instead of calling it three strikes, they just call it the habitual offender law. Jacobia Grimes is facing up to life in prison for stealing candy in December of 2015. It says, uh, Jacobia Grimes, 34, made an appearance in court last week pleading not guilty for a December 2015 arrest. Grimes was charged with theft of goods after he was seen with $31 worth of candy in his pockets from a local Dollar General. Because of his five prior theft convictions, Grimes' alleged theft is seen as a felony, making him the perfect candidate for the state's habitual offender law. Now that Grimes' potential conviction has been raised to 20 years to life, the law has been questioned in court. District Attorney Leon Canizaro chose for the char- chose the charge for Grimes on Thursday. Damn, Leon, just you gonna get a man life? Judge Franz Zip. Man, let me just read that again. District Court. District Attorney, sorry, District Attorney Leon Canizaro. So see, this is what we're talking about. This is who you need to get out of office. That's who you need to be getting pissed off about. Black radio show hosts and talk show hosts and bloggers and Facebook famous people that go crazy talking about Ken Thompson. Do you know who Leon Canizaro is? Are you going for his job? Are you protesting him? Are you putting him on front street? Are you blowing him up on social media saying get rid of him? Because he's trying to give your brother life in prison over some candy stole from the Dollar General store without even batting an eyelash. I don't think anybody knows this man's name. Anyway, Judge Franz Ziblich, who is looking over the charge, he didn't dismiss it. He's, he's going to look it over and consider it. Was skeptical of the extremely brutal suggestion for the nonviolent offender. Grimes has served nine years in prison for his last thefts which were items that he took, such as socks and trousers. Oh, man. All right. It's funny. It's not even funny. 20 years of life for a Snickers bar or two or three or four, Ziblich said. If Grimes is found guilty, Louisiana law could leave Ziblich little discretion over the sentence. So here we have, again, a judge that doesn't really have the power to operate his court as he would see fit. He's the judge. The name itself says he should be judging. But the law won't allow him to do that. Oh, Louisiana's habitual offender law has been in place for 30 years. The result has been that sentences of several decades or even life for nonviolent crimes are not unusual in Louisiana, which is the prison capital of the entire planet Earth where all known human beings live. It's not hard to figure out what's happening here. They are the prison capital of this planet. This is the only planet where we know that we even live. Is this what you want? Because this is contributing to it, these kind of laws. Wow, man. In other states, individuals convicted of similar crimes would have received a much shorter sentence or even no jail time at all. Reform advocates have shown a strong dislike for repeat offender laws that appear to be beneficial to prisons. Louisiana is considered to be the home of the most strict prisons in the country. As Max has often said, they got a, a prison like running it like McDonald's, the cheapest, cheapest production costs to just run them through. It isn't known... Yeah, it isn't known how the habitual offender law has housed the state's life prisoners, but with a yearly average prison costing the state 18800 a life conviction for Grimes can hurt taxpayer pockets. Really? You think so? Currently, the Louisiana Justice Reinvestment Task Force reform is investigating the state's sentencing and corrections policies. Grimes' attorneys, Miles Swenson and Michael Kennedy, were also questionable about the use of the habitual offender law. I just think it points to the absurdity of the multiple billing statute. They're spreading their time 
they're spending their time to lock someone up for years over $31 worth of candy, and it's ridiculous. They also suggested the prosecutors could have been charged. The prosecutors could have could have charged him with a misdemeanor in, a, in another statute. Grimes, who has a ninth grade education and a heroin problem, is also facing a drug paraphernalia possession charge. He expected to face a judge again on Wednesday. Wow. Max? Um, I, while you were saying that, I was actually looking at another article I found on this uh, district attorney where the title uh, basically says, playing dirty in the big easy and accuses this man of several acts of corruption and uh, shows how a lot of his attitude stems from a lawsuit that ended up getting one of the people he convicted $14 million, a black man. And it seems now he has some sort of vengeance that he's trying to get involved here. Uh, even the Supreme Court had to come into play at one point. I posted that story at New Abolitionist Radio so you guys can read through it at your leisure as well and kind of put two and two together. Normally when all you need is a name and you can just Google them and find out what has been going on with this particular person. And this seems like there's a lot of uh, corruption and cheating going on with this particular district attorney. Now, as far as the 31 years, again, man, sequentially we've been showing you how this has all played out from 1994 till now with these three-strike laws, or in the case of uh, Louisiana, the habitual offender law, which is the same damn thing, is doing nothing but sending people frivolously into prisons where the taxpayer has to pay Louisiana or whatever state they may be in it to house these prisoners for a profit, where they're worked for a profit, where they're exploited, abused sexually, mentally, physically, you name it. It is nothing short of modern-day slavery and human trafficking. Hmm. Well, this is what we're dealing with, man. This is what we're dealing with. I'll find a link, too, to the other brother we were talking about with the mentally ill brother that was uh, that uh, we covered in this in this same type of story a while back. But, I mean, I also want people just to think about, like we've reported on this program, the, um, the uh, growing uh, epidemic of heroin use and, you know, the, the continuing problem with meth use in the white communities is bringing on, you know, people like Chris Christie coming out and saying we need to treat these people with love and we need to treat these drug, you know, issues. You know, everybody and everybody has someone that's affected by this. You know, we need to open our hearts. We're seeing the most staunch and most uh, conservative right wingers come out with the bleeding heart message of love and support for white folks that's got drug problems. And as we see still going on right now at this very time, while police departments all in the suburbs, all throughout the Northeast, where it's ravaging Rhode Island, Connecticut, Massachusetts, all up and down the Eastern Sea, just ravaging white neighborhoods. Just, I mean, their kids and, and schools and problems all up and down the line, people dying, all these uh, actors and stars. You know, this is a real problem. And we're seeing treatment programs and we're seeing... Uh, uh, what they call uh, like uh, house arrest programs where people can be at home even though they've been convicted of possession and paraphernalia and trafficking and everything else. You can stay at home and play video games and they got drugs that they're developing, experimental tests and trials they're giving people to try to wean them off this stuff and help them. All of this is going on. But again, I'm not the one introducing the racial component to this. I'm giving you the facts and the numbers and the, and the history and, and the situation is put in front of you clearly so you can see and judge for yourself. When you see 
millions and millions of blacks and Latinos and mentally ill, homeless, treated like doormats and thrown away for life sentences for minor possession charges. And then you see that in contrast what's done to the other folks. I don't have to tell you what time it is. I think you can see it. Yes, you should be able to. Some of them see it and deny it. Others embrace it. Some people from our own communities, people who look just like you, and yeah. just like you, embrace it fully as a, a power structure. For instance, the uh, story of uh, Sheriff David Clark, who was awarded the Law Enforcement Leader of the Year. Leader of the Year. Uh, for those who don't know, he's a sheriff out in Wisconsin. I believe he's Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin. And in Wisconsin, the state have, has a population of 5.7 million. 87.8% of that is a white population. 6.6% is a black population. And yet they're being incarcerated at 10 to 1 uh, uh, per 100,000 citizens. Whites are at 415, and blacks are at 4,416. In city, uh, the city of Milwaukee itself, one in two, or actually greater than one in two, black men can expect to spend time in prison before they're 30 years old. This is where his roost is at. He's the big boss here. This is his responsibility. And he's somehow been awarded leader of the year in law enforcement. This is the most self-hating, anti-black, proxy racist I've ever seen in my life. I, you know, I try not to hate somebody, but he's really damn close to me feeling hate for somebody. Every time I listen to this man on these right-wing programs say things like Black Lives Matter and how we need to, uh, what was the word that he used, exterminate them as a group, basically calling for the extermination of human lives as a sheriff publicly on national television, and so much worse. Even in one case, he had to testify before Congress and didn't know diddly about whether or not police, uh, there was records for police who were suffering from depression or PTSD or how many of them are on medication. He had no idea. This is one of the worst people in the United States of America. And he's being extolled as one of the best. Yep. Mr. Self-Hate, he should have won the Self-Hater of the Year Award. Because, I mean, that's all I really know him for. He talks, he talks real greasy, man. And as uh, regular listeners to the program and members of the you know, new abolitionist movement and the groups and whatnot that we've you know, uh, have, have come to know and, and work with over the years, may remember when uh, when all three of us and several other abolitionists uh, followed suit, so thank you all for that, you know, call to arms, uh, went on his, what was at first being advertised as being his Facebook page, um, and calling him out, you know, about his, about his ways, and I don't remember exactly what the incident was at the time, but he was on the wrong side of it again. And uh, calling him out and bringing, you know, bringing that about the 13th Amendment and just talking about all the things we discussed on the program. And whoever was moderating got found themselves in deep water immediately. They had to come out and say, well, this isn't actually his page. Um, but we know that we speak for what he we, we stand for, what he believes in. And we just appreciate him like they back down off of that. 
you know, <laughs> it got real hot on him real fast. So I don't know if that was actually him uh, originally, you know, like following that page and contributing or whatever, and he just couldn't get in, you know, couldn't get in that deep or what happened. But that page just immediately came out like, wait, 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 we're going too deep. Y'all got facts. Y'all know what y'all talking about. Y'all calling me out. Uh, no, this this is not me. Was it Wizard of Oz? Don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain. This is not Sheriff Clark. <laughs> It was yeah. Sheriff Clark a minute ago. Right. <laughs> you know, Milwaukee's one of the last places you want to live in America as a black person. You just don't want to live there. Uh, one More than one in two before 30 are going to prison. Those are odds that you just can't, you just don't even want to risk. And that's his, his you know, at one point I remember an article coming out when they were having these police killings in Milwaukee. Uh, Sheriff David Clark issued arrests uh, on the activists who were organizing the protests without warrants. Just told the police to go and arrest them without a warrant and started right. rounding up organizers. This is like the, the most criminal dude you can ever imagine, one of the worst. Uh, he'd probably be running for vice president with Donald Trump in the future. <laughs> that's his goal, ultimately. I believe that's his goal. I don't. I mean, I just will say for the record, I don't care for the personage, the, the character that he plays. I don't know this man personally, and I don't really believe a lot of these people really are what they present themselves to be on TV. It's a propaganda war, man. This guy has has been the Democratic uh, sheriff of the county for years. He runs on a Democrat ticket. He's a black man in face, but he clearly holds white supremacist intentions and beliefs. And he clearly is a conservative, a Republican. Traditionally, these the things that he says and does. He shows up all the time. I've ever seen him speaking. He's on Fox News. He's on conservative right-wing talk shows and radio shows, giving his commentary about how messed up black folks are. So he neither represents black folks with this character, nor does he represent the law, because as Max just told you, he's talking about blatantly just blowing away your constitutional rights just for his own personal gratification. And he only gives sound bites and interviews to right-wing conservative news shows. So this man is not only <clears throat> breaking the law, he's not a Democrat, he's, he's not even representing black folks. So, I mean, I don't think he's really what he's playing out. I think he's just an actor, honestly. I think he's an opportunist and an actor. I think he's playing a role. It's possible, brother. But the role he's yeah. playing is killing people. People yeah. are literally like dying. Yeah, yep. I'm just not going to give him credit for being a person. That's how much I don't like him. I'm not going to give him credit for being original. I don't think he's organic. He's just I just, I just don't. Yeah, I don't think he's Control. organic. I don't think he's a real person. I think you're a real person. I know you. I've talked to you. I've worked with you. I've researched with you. I'm in the trenches with you. I believe you are a real person. I know I'm real. I know Scotty's real. I know a real person. I don't think this fool is even real. This, sure. this is some dude with a, he's a puppet with a hand up his ass. He don't talk till they tell him what to say. He doesn't move till they tell him what to wear and where to go. I don't think he's real. Well, I knew the one person that is real uh, on the other side of the coin, and I'd like to give him a huge shout out and uh, offer my prayers for his safety, just like I did for those 12 NYPD policemen. And that's uh, the Kentucky judge whose career is being assaulted right now because he spoke out about racism. We're talking about Olu Stevens out in Kentucky, Jefferson Circuit judge. And uh, if you remember, we reported on his uh, tale here 
where he just decided he was no longer going to allow the prosecution of black men and women with all white juries in Kentucky. It had gotten out of hand and he was tired of it. And as a judge, he refused to allow it and literally told them to go back and find you some black people to put onto that jury. And because of his stance now, his career is being threatened. Uh, like those New York Police Department uh, officers, his career is being threatened. So we're hoping and praying that his life is safe and that he continues to fight for the rights of people across the country from Kentucky by standing up for what's right and refusing to toe the line any longer. Indeed. Peace to the abolitionists, as I always say, this brother, you know, I mean, these are abolitionist movements. These are abolitionist actions. When you, you know, yeah, he's a judge, and I don't know every case he's adjudicated. I don't know everybody he put in jail. I don't know if they deserve to go. I don't know everything about his career, but I know he took a stand for this in this situation, and it had to have come from a period of time of getting fed up with seeing this thing happening over and over, and he had his power to do so, and he did what was within his power to do. And do you see the establishment reacting against him? You don't see the people around in support around him. You don't see him circling the wagons. Now, when you see the mayor say, I had to have a talk with my mixed-race son. Obviously, you see his mom is black. Uh, I'm obviously a white man. So, yeah, I had to have a talk with my son because he's melanated. And uh, he could, you know, fall into the category of millions of people. The probability is very high. Well, you see what happened in that case? The cops circled the wagons. Yeah. And right now with uh, Judge Stevens, he's filed a lawsuit against the prosecutors and judges in Kentucky who are seeking to remove him, um, declaring that his words about racism both in the court and out of the court are not only protected by the First Amendment, but are his moral and ethical responsibility as a judge. See, he understood that it is not right for you to have an all-white jury in a town that is 21% African-American. Uh, and that's in Kentucky, where white supremacists openly attend Donald Trump rallies. Uh, so he's standing up against that, and I, I hope that he stands successfully. There's a lot against you, brother. And uh, we've we got you back. If you need us, Joe, you got to do it. Holler at us. New Abolitionist Radio here to back you up. Maybe we can get you on the program. Uh, we'll try. We'll reach out to Judge Stevens. I have a friend who's a friend of him, his, a lifelong friend of his. Maybe we can make that happen. Indeed. Well, we're coming up on the uh, last break of the evening. When we come back, uh, we're going to get into our final segments, which is our abolitionist and profile. We got something special for you today and also our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. You've been listening to New Abolitionist Radio on BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio, uh, where we're talking about modern-day slavery and human trafficking 
which is allowed in the United States through the 13th Amendment exception clause and exploited by not only private prisons, but also federal and state prisons, jails, probation uh, companies, uh, parole organizations, and on and on and on. At every level of our society, slavery is deeply embedded. And we're here to fight that and end it because that's what abolition is about. It's not about fixing it. It's not about reforming it. It's about ending something that should not exist in the first place. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I know you've had something on your heart as of late, uh, Brother Johanan. And uh, before we get into our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, I was wondering if you wanted to speak on it. And I know that's the situation going on in Brooklyn with Ken Thompson and uh, the way he's being attacked right now uh, and called some terrible names for his decisions that he's recently made. Right, right. We're still following the story. So I just want to preface, you know, what I'm about to say with with, uh, putting it out there. Look, I don't support Peter Liang doing anything other than hard time for murder at all. Unequivocally, I do not support anything Ken Thompson said with regard to Peter Liang's sentencing and his recommendation that he does not do time, but instead does house arrest and community service and so forth. I do not support that with any fiber, any cell in my body. It's completely ridiculous. It's bullshit. So just put that on the record. At the same time, I can in no way support saying this man needs to be booted out of his office. With over 20 people being exonerated in his short term, he's been in office in the first place. He put his he put his balls on the line from day one, basically. He could have easily been escorted out of office for what he's been involved in doing. And I know, I've spoken to several of the exonerees. No joke. I've talked to people about this from the first word I heard of this. I've talked to the people that he has affected and changed their lives and gotten them out of prison. And they've all said, I hear what you're saying. It is messed up. Yeah, he's wrong. But no, I don't want him out of office. That could have been me that was waiting on my turn. So we got to get serious about freedom, people. We got to get serious about justice. We need to understand what's going on. The recommendation that he gave is a political ploy. 18% of the people in Brooklyn that will be voting in the next election are projected to be people of Asian American descent. The Asian American vote has powerful political lobbies. No kidding. You need to look into this while you're saying this man needs to be kicked out. All he's trying to do is at least get somebody to help him out because when he got voted in the first time, and the first time that a, 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 an incumbent was ever unseated by, by a first-time runner, he created history when he got in that spot, getting Charles Hines out of there who had been running wild through Brooklyn and caused raising hell and destroying families and destroying that community for over 25 years. And I never heard anybody saying get rid of Hines. He contributed to hundreds of thousands of people going in and out of Rikers and going in and out of state prisons up and down every single day. That's what he did. He supported the corrupt cops like Louis Scarcella, who had a stellar career and retired with honors and still enjoys a retirement and still enjoys his benefits. See, that's what the last DA did, and nobody said a word. Now you get a brother in there, and the first two years he's in there, he's exonerated over 20 people, got one of, if not the largest uh, criminal or uh, conviction investigation units in America, and over words he said that have not yet affected the sentencing, you're trying to boot him out of there with a bunch of rhetoric and a bunch of trash talking. Go raise a couple million dollars for for somebody's political action committee. 
go find another candidate who will maintain that office and keep getting our folks off the plantation. Figure out a way to to work around what the Asians are promising promising him that they're going to do, and they've got the track record to show that they can and will do it. If they don't want him in there, they'll put their millions behind another candidate and put their millions into a, a, a smear campaign to make sure he gets out of there. So let's look at the bigger picture and try to get folks off the plantation. Look, Akai Gurley, I'm sorry. Rest in power, brother. I hate that that happened. Sending Peter Liang is just a feel-good measure. Uh, sending him to prison is just a feel-good measure anyway because he's dead and gone and we can't get him back. So let's look to the folks that we can get out and try to keep somebody that's an advocate and, and is an underground railroad conductor as we've honored him and former DA Craig Watkins down in Dallas who lost his job and that conviction integrity unit is history. So I asked you earlier, uh, yesterday, Johan, I was like, how many people do we have like this across the country? And, and your reply was just a couple, a few, just a yeah. few. So yeah. uh, we really can't afford to lose one. Who are you going to put to replace him? You got somebody in mind, maybe? I know on the day that I was doing the interview with Nina Turner, the spokesperson for the uh, campaign for Bernie Sanders, you were doing a radio show with another gentleman who brought you on for no other reason than to insult you uh, because you were offering a logical uh, explanation of what was occurring as they speak. As you said, 20 people. Uh, freed because of this man. And who else was going to do that? The guy before him was not doing that. He was doing the opposite. Yeah. I just want our people to widen our gaze. I want people to have an an in-depth look. That's what this program is about. I mean, folks know, we we don't get on here and play around and do, you know, do do the step and fetch it and, you know, some kind of menstrual show or some kind of mess. This is serious research. This is real facts and evidence and information. As we've said before, we're building evidence They'll have an archive that's, that's suitable for prosecuting and uh, con- getting convictions on untold dozens, hundreds, even thousands of individuals who have been, who have been complicit in, in breaking the law and, and victimizing the citizens of this country. It's not a joke. It's not a game. It's not something we're playing with or whatever. Our lives are on the line. Our names are on the line. We are under watch and under, under scrutiny in our personal lives as well as on this program. I'm not up here playing around with this. Y'all need to quit playing with freedom for real. You get pissed off and have a knee-jerk reaction. Oh, he said they don't. He don't need to. We need to get this coon out of here. Well, who are you gonna put in there that's gonna get somebody out of prison? So you just upset. All you have to do is sit back. The man's gonna get voted out anyway if you don't support him. So you don't need to call him a coon and get him booted out. If you don't get off your Brooklyn black behind and put a five dollars towards his campaign, he's gonna be out of a job anyway. It's just that simple. So people really need to wake up and realize what's going on. And another thing, Max, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop, but another thing we discussed also is the fact of the matter is Craig Watkins, Ken Thompson, brothers like this that started these units, yes, there are the Innocence Projects. There are these kind of groups. There are universities all over the country that are working in exoneration efforts. These are private citizens. These are public groups where people can do these things without the same scrutiny, without the same oversight as political individuals. It is super rare to have a political individual that is willing to put their career on the line and do this type of thing, forever be attached. Every person that they got to get somebody out, they are forever attached to that individual. If anything ever goes wrong in that person's life, they're going to go right back to them and say, well, you got them out of prison. So when you get these people in these situations, you need to be, you need to pay attention to what they're doing. And now we're seeing a rise in several other states of what may turn out to be the system 
the reformers, the oppressors trying to get rid of, this could be some political ploy that's even above our heads that we just now only being able to maybe see what they're doing. Get rid of the original ones that created these kind of units and are having success getting the real slaves off the plantations and then put in folks that are going to do what the David Clarks of the world will do. That are going to do what these corrupt judges and district attorneys like we just talked about in, in uh, New Orleans are going to do. Eh, we'll maybe get one a year out. We might get one every every once in a while out. We might we might look over these cases and we can't quite find enough evidence to get these folks out. See, that's what they do is they bar the door. They get in the position of power and then they make sure don't nobody go in or out instead of having people that are organically getting in that position and setting folks free. So we gotta be aware, we gotta be alert, we gotta pay attention, we gotta learn from history and know what they're doing and be be aware. What they say, don't get fooled again. That's I mean that's really what I want us to do. Don't get fooled again. The Justice Department uh, formed a task force to investigate the overpopulation of prisons in the United States and came to the conclusion that they need to reduce the prison population by 60,000 people over the next 10 years. That's the kind of reply reformers will get you, something that is really right. makes no sense at all, that doesn't touch the problem, doesn't even uh, affect the problem. You'll have more than 60,000 people coming back into the prisons or into the prisons over the next 10 years. So 60,000 is nothing when you're faced with the potential of one and a half million people who need to be freed from prisons and are unjustly in prison. Yes. So these are the answers that we see when we allow the system to take over something like WIC, like they did with the Black Panthers. Hmm. Right. Right. People get people need to realize that that's a benefit of listening to this program is we really are trying to give you a full picture of what's going on. Maybe you don't catch it. I understand. But listen to what we're saying and then look into the research and try to figure it out for yourself. We're trying to teach people how to think like an abolitionist, act like an abolitionist, but think like an abolitionist. Think about things in terms of freedom and slavery. It's that right. simple, black and white. Either the light is on in the room or the light's off in the room. It's that simple. Either these people are free or they're enslaved. Let's uh, take this to the next segment now uh, and give you an example of what's happening in Brooklyn uh, with our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. And this is uh, from the New York Times, and its title says, Brooklyn Man is exonerated after 25 years in prison for murder. And this is from March 10, 2016. When police officers came upon the body of Nita Mae Carter in a park in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, 25 years ago, her face and neck were battered, her arms splayed, her legs straight, in the pose of crucifixion. A man named Andre Hatchett would be convicted of second-degree murder based on the testimony of a man who claimed to have witnessed the killing. On Thursday afternoon, prosecutors and state Supreme Court admitted what Mr. Hatchett had maintained since his arrest that he had not killed Miss Carter. Mr. Hatchett was failed by almost every institution he came into contact with during the course of his prosecution. Mark Hale, who leads the Brooklyn District Attorney's Conviction Review Unit, told the courtroom cram with Mr. Hatchett's friends and relatives. A wide smile spread across Mr. Hatchett's face, and the audience burst into applause as a judge vacated the conviction and dismissed the indictment, carrying out the joint request from prosecutors and Mr. Hatchett's legal team, which included lawyers from the Innocence Project. I've been to hell and back, but it feels good to be free, Mr. Hatchett said, his arm draped over his sister's 
as they walk through the downtown through downtown Brooklyn. Mr. Hatchett is the 19th person exonerated in Brooklyn since the district attorney Ken Thompson took office in 2014 and bolstered efforts to review questionable convictions. Mr. Hatchett's case had taken place during the tenure of Mr. Thompson's predecessor, Charles J. Hines, who had created a review unit but was faulted for not acting promptly in resolving questionable cases and for standing by prosecutors accused of misconduct. Before his arrest, Mr. Hatchett was a new father and an ice delivery man living in an apartment in Bedford-Stuyvesant with his mother. Now 49, Mr. Hatchett has spent nearly 25 years behind bars. While in prison, he lost both his parents as well as a son. Seema Saifi, a state attorney at the Innocence Project, said if confluence of forces had doomed Mr. Hatchett, this case involved a perfect storm of error, bad defense counsel, an unreliable witness, critical evidence that was never disclosed to the defense, Ms. Safi said. When the killing occurred on February 18, 1991, Mr. Hatchett was 24 and hobbling on crutches after being hit with bullets in the throat and leg as a bystander in a shooting the previous year. He had an IQ of 63 with the reading and writing ability of a first grader, according to lawyers from the Innocence Project. Mr. Hatchett and Miss Carter had seen each other earlier on in the evening of the murder in a rooming house where his aunt lived alongside Miss Carter and her mother. Mr. Hatchett gave Miss Carter money to buy crack, his lawyer said in an interview. She left around 9.30 p.m. and never returned. Though he co cooperated with the police and provided an al alibi, Mr. Hatchett was arrested and convicted almost entirely on the testimony of a career criminal named Gerard Williams, who said that he had seen from 30 to 40 feet away Mr. Hatchett striking a body on the ground in the park that night. Mr. Williams offered the account after he was arrested in connection with a burglary a little over a week after the killing and after having initially identified someone else as the killer. Information the prosecutors never gave the defense, as was required. The defense itself was so incompetent that a judge declared Mr. Hatchett's first trial a mistrial. But even at the second trial, Mr. Hatchett's lawyers failed to present evidence of his intellectual disability or of the fact that his injuries would almost certainly have prevented him from striking Miss Carter with the force Mr. Williams had described or lugging her body across the park while leaning on crutches. It's frightening how easy it is to convict an innocent person in this country, Ms. Safi said, and it's overwhelmingly difficult to release an innocent person. Larry C. Sheck, a founder of the Innocence Project, praised Mr. Thompson's office for working tirelessly with Mr. Hatch's team, which also included a lawyer from Paul Weiss Rifkin, Wharton and Garrison LLP, on their efforts. Without this collaboration, Mr. Hatchett would likely still be in jail, Ms. Shrek said. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio so salute you, Brother Hatchett. Welcome to freedom, brother. Welcome to freedom. Enjoy the rest of your life. Salute. Salute. There you have it. That's real right there. See, that ain't that BS. That's not emotions and feelings and trying to be trending and trying to be topical and just, you know, saying a bunch of inflammatory hyperbole. And that's not foolishness. That's reality. You just heard him say the man lost his family while he was in there. He don't know his kid. I mean, this dude lost his life. And he potentially could not have gotten out had it not been for this unit. 
and once it's disbanded, it's the end of that. Do you think that Max, you know the story. You you've been studying this longer than I ever have. You know what's going on. What would you estimate is the number potentially of people just in New York, just out of that Brooklyn office, let's just say. How many do you do you think it's in the thousands? I think it's uh probably in the tens of thousands if you go back long enough. If you were to go back to the beginning of the drug war, nineteen seventy one You'd be in the tens of thousands. Hmm. And if you just have Scarcella, there's like a hundred or two hundred of them at least. At least. Yeah. 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 I remember a line from a training day when Denzel was trying to tell the the rookie or you know the younger cop or whatever about how you know don't call him out on whether he's a good cop or not because he's seen some corrupt stuff. He's like, I'm responsible for you know forty nine thousand man years of time, you know, whatever. He had his numbers memorized of how many people he put away. And I just think about that, like, with, like, regular cops like Scarcella, you know? How many thousands of man years have these people just robbed, man? Like, you going to hell to go meet the devil with, like, a bag full of money. Like, I got all these years of these souls I just took. I brought them to you. It's, I mean, it's so evil, how can you be responsible for just destroying lives and you just don't even, you just don't feel nothing about it? And these people have in common that most typically they're black folks, super low income, is in this case, IQ of 63, they're mentally ill, they're physically ill some kind of way. I mean, God, can you pray on the, on the weak? Any, ugh. Well, we know that historically speaking, this is all part and parcel of how slavery is and the, the things that occur in slavery. All the violence, all the abuse, all the exploitation is all part of the act of enslaving a people uh, for whatever reason. And we have an example of that with part of a story that was written, a serial story that was written by a little-known abolitionist uh, that we pulled out of the archives today. And it would show you uh, the microcosm of what was going on during the times of the uh, slave, the uh, slave, the Refugee Slave Act, the Fugitive Slave Laws, during the mm-hmm. time Fugitive Slave Laws. And you can see the reflection of it here in 2016. So, uh, Scotty, did you by any chance record this, or should we, should I, we just read it off the... Oh, yeah, go ahead and read it. Didn't have Johan, you want to tell us, or do we want Scotty? Say it again. Would you I like can to do it? Uh, you go ahead, Johanna. All right. All right. I got it up. We're ready to roll. Abolitionist in profile this evening. This is a true tale of slavery. It was a serialized narrative that appeared in four issues of The Leisure Hour, a family journal of instruction and recreation in February 1861. Although no byline credit is given, the author includes the transcript of a letter he wrote signed John Jacobs, Harriet Jacobs' brother. He was born in Edenton, North Carolina, to slave parents who died when he was a child. He belonged to four different masters who lived in and around Edenton. John and Harriet Jacobs both suffered under slavery, and they were determined to free themselves. Harriet hid in their free grandmother's Edenton home for almost seven years, waiting for a time when she could escape with her children to the north. John escaped to New York during his master's honeymoon tour. He 
soon learned that his sister had also escaped successfully. They were reunited and moved to Boston together. Following the enactment of the Fugitive Slave Law, John left the United States, while Harriet remained behind with her employer, who eventually bought her freedom from slave catchers. The final installment of Jacob's narrative, dated February 28, 1861, is a compilation of anecdotes about how slaves were treated in the South and a discussion of the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850. This is from the Leisure Hour, a family journal of instruction and recreation of the 479, February 28, 1861. A True Tale of Slavery, Chapter 7. Cruel Treatment of Slaves, the Fugitive Slave Law, Slavery Opposed to Natural Rights and to Christianity. In concluding this short statement of my experience of slavery, I beg the reader to remember that I am not writing of what I have heard, but of what I have seen and of what I defy to the world to prove false. There lived about two miles up a river emptying itself into Albemarle Sound, a planter whose name was Carabas. His plantation was called Pembroke. At his death, his slaves were sold. I mention this because slaves seldom or ever have more than one name. Their surname is most generally that of their first master. The person I am now about to allude to was known by the name of George Carabas. After the death of his own master, he was owned by Mr. Popleston. After that, by young John Horton, who sold him to a Negro trader. George was chained in the gang with other slaves and dragged from his wife and friends. After a few days travel on the road, by some means other, he made his escape and returned back to that spot where he knew he could find one heart to feel for him and in whom he could confide. But he had not been there long before the bloodthirsty Negro hunters got on his trail. One beautiful Sunday morning about midsummer, while the church bells were ringing, four of the pursuers overtook poor George and shot him dead. If he is outlawed, they doubtless argued, we, not, we only need to show his head and the reward is ours. But if he is not outlawed, what then? Why, they may try to make us pay for him, but we will not be fools enough to say that we shot him unless we are being paid for shooting him his body is put into a canoe his head thrown in which lies on his breast these four southern gentlemen now return to the town leaving the canoe to inquire how the advertisement reads on finding that the reward was to be given to anyone who would apprehend and confine him in any jail in the state they saw that they could not publicly boast of their fiendish work now the question is what had this man done that he should be so inhumanely butchered and beheaded the crime that he had committed and the only crime was to leave the unnatural traitor in slaves and the souls of men to return to his natural and affectionate wife nothing is done to the murderers they only made a blunder slaves are outlawed and shot with impunity and the tyrant who shoots them is paid for it but in this case george was not outlawed so their trouble was all for nothing and the glory only known to themselves that's our new abolitionist radio abolitionist profile for this evening salute brother. Wow, you said it ties right into what's going on today, don't it ever, though? That's amazing, man. So we got all these stories of folks that are going to jails and dying in custody. Uh, last year we had one month, I think it was July, when all these sisters passed. Uh, the, one of the most high-profile remembered, of course, being Sandra Bland. We know about people that are handcuffed and in, sitting in police cars who magically shoot themselves in the back of the head and I mean, it's just on and on. This same type of slave catchers, you know, brutalizing and murdering, murdering black folks. Is, I mean, it's still going on. This story sounds like this story could happen right now. Yeah. And, and instead masses, of going to prison, what yeah. did they get? Time off with yeah. pay. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
this could happen right now. Right now, this could happen to any one of these brothers anywhere across the country, any place. Not it's just bad in this area or it could happen in this area. Anywhere. So we actually went worse because at one point it would be imagined that in the South or in the slave states is where this primarily would happen or somebody was being caught, you know, in a free state with the fugitive slave law. But at this point, the reformers of back then helped to expand slavery and this slave, this type of treatment to a nationwide situation that we're still dealing with right now. Right. You know, the uh, fugitive slave laws were the first mass incarceration period. Basically, the same thing we're facing now. Yeah. Well, well slavery itself is the uh, is is the first mass incarceration of plantation. I mean, slavery is incarceration. Right. 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 Well, using it in a legal term, that was their first mass incarceration period, where they had cops going out and collecting people uh, who were called fugitive slaves all across America, uh, much like what they did with the. Native Americans collecting scalps and being paid by the government for every scalp or well, with the fugitive slave laws, it was bodies. You were being paid by the government or whoever owned these properties, so-called properties, uh, for collecting people. Well, there you have it. That has been our program. Uh, we're coming to the conclusion, our final statements for the evening. Hopefully we have taken you through a ride that will give you a broader perspective and a much uh, needed insight at how important and uh, how much we need to act on this right now. It's not something that can wait because every minute that goes by, somebody else is being raped, somebody else is being murdered, somebody else is being abused or brutalized, somebody's family is suffering every minute that passes. As a matter of fact, today, 34,000 people went into our jails. 14 of them will never come out alive today. Well, I'll go ahead and start off our final uh, statements as we running up against the clock. Um, I just want want to say rest in power uh, to a former Black Panther. Uh, well, I shouldn't even say former, but a Black Panther, new abolitionist. I'm sorry. Yeah, he was a new abolitionist, but also um, part of the um, Republic of New Africa and uh, the Black Liberation Army, but uh, we lost a freedom fighter, Abdullah Majid. Um, he passed away. They had his services today. Uh, we posted some information from the Malcolm X Commemoration Committee out of Brooklyn, New York, on uh, the Facebook page for Political Prisoner Radio. Um, so we lost, you know, Mondo Wilanga last week, uh, you know, also affiliated with the Black Panther Party. These are OGs. These are... These are brothers and sisters, you know what I'm saying, that will be in their 60s and in their 70s who have spent the past 30 years in prison because they were out there on the streets uh, trying to make Black Lives Matter um, through the various organizations that they was working with. So, uh, you know, uh, condolences again to the family of Brother Abdullah Majid, and they had his home going services today in New York. Rest in power, brothers. Rest in power. I'll be brief. I uh, just want to say the same. Rest in power to uh, Sister Waukesha Wilson uh, out in L.A. a couple of weeks ago, uh, not quite even a couple of weeks ago, uh, right after Easter, uh, found dead in her cell. So, again, you know, we're seeing it happening again this year. We're running up against it. So uh, look out for your loved ones. Uh, try to stay out the nets of the slave catchers. Peace to the abolitionists. 
death to these oppressors. I just want to finish by saying, as Sean King, Angela Davis, and Michelle Alexander have noted, it's time for a new political party, an abolitionist party platform, not Republican, Democrat, or Green. Our primary focus should be freedom and justice. As we are fully convinced that slavery and human trafficking has been legalized, codified, and practiced across the every state in the union, the only reply that holds any legitimacy is abolition. As such, we need a party to represent these ideals. We are not now, nor have we ever been, part of the 98%. We will not be marginalized and diluted. If you build it, they will come, and we know that abolition is the reason for a revolution. So we can finally know some peace. Peace. Playback! I'm gonna go